0: I'm Josh Hammer.
1: I'm Emily Jashinsky.
0: I'm Ben Weingarten.
2: And I'm Inez Sutman
0: And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Emin Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So welcome back, everyone. As usual, we have four... Topics that don't necessarily share a lot in common other than being very important for you, the listener, or you, the viewer. So we're going to dive right into it. So I will get us started with the big news in the media sphere this week, which is Tucker Carlson and Fox News parting ways. We will talk about the possible implications of that. Then we're going to toss it over to Emily, who will talk about the big political campaign news of the week, which is the formal announcement of Joe Biden's 2024 re-election campaign. Then we're going to go over to Ben. With the big kind of deep state intelligence committee uh, or intelligence community news pertaining to Biden campaign being spurred into the, just utter and complete decrepit complicity in the uh, Hunter Biden laptop story in the New York Post and all of that. And then Inez will take us home by talking about the recent kind of flurry of attacks on Justice Thomas from ProPublica and other kind of uh, lefty or lefty adjacent outlets. They are always coming after Clarence Thomas, as we know, but let's dive right in here. Let's get started with the big news of the week, which is Tucker Carlson and Fox News. So this really kind of hit out of nowhere from my perspective. So I I was actually at the Heritage Foundation's uh, 50th anniversary gala last Friday evening. It was a, it was a really kind of uh, lavish, kind of spectacular affair. It was a surprise Dirk's Bentley concert. I'm a huge country music fan. So I appreciated that. Um, Fireworks over the Potomac river. And the point here I'm making is that Tucker, Tucker Carlson was actually the keynote speaker at that conference. And he gave kind of an electric address. He was introduced in deeply gracious fashion by Dr. Kevin Roberts, the president of Heritage and a good friend here of the Emmett Burke Foundation and the National Conservatism Movement. And there was really just no indication whatsoever that Tucker was possibly going to part ways the next business day, literally the next business day with Fox News. He, of course, is the highest rated star there. And I think for many people, especially of kind of the four of us of our generation, Tucker really was kind of the Main reason, frankly, was was the number one draw to Fox News. I think some of Fox's other kind of um, a, a opinion stars, folks like Sean Hannity typically kind of appeal to aside the older demographic. Uh, Tucker really was the one who spoke, I think, to younger conservatives, millennial conservatives, Gen Z conservatives and really kind of just a whole kind of new right Uh, uh, Phenomenon in general. And Tucker is no stranger to uh, the national conservatism movement. He, of course, was a keynote speaker at the very first NatCon conference back in Washington, D.C. in July of 2019. And, you know, I can only speak for myself when I say that, you know, his opening monologues um, really made for kind of absolute must watch television. In many ways, he kind of set the agenda for what kind of the more nationalist and populist elements of the right would be thinking about, writing about, talking about, and so forth here. So we do not know uh, officially why this happened. There has been all sorts of kind of speculation. There have been various kind of media write-ups of it. Um, I guess I'll just kind of give my own two cents on the matter and then kind of toss it open to all of you guys. Um, So Fox obviously had this gargantuan $787 million settlement with Dominion that happened very, very recently. And we have subsequently seen um, uh, the, the letting go of both Tucker Carlson and Dan Bongino splitting ways. Uh, I, I, I guess initially, it kind of felt to me that that Bongino might be leaving simply for kind of pure kind of contract dispute reasons. Maybe he thought he'd get more money elsewhere or something. And that may well be true, but you know, difficult to not start to kind of connect the dots to the Dominion settlement, which again was just an absolutely gargantuan sum of money. You know, it, it's also... It's become abidingly clear, I I think, also over the past year or two. Maybe even going back even further than that, that I think many of kind of the suits and kind of the C-suite at Fox, um, you know, in the Murdoch family and outside the Murdoch family don't necessarily have the same vision, I think would be a polite way of putting it Um, with Tucker Carlson when it comes to kind of the future of the right, the the issues that should be focused on. um, Again, I think Tucker's kind of emphasis on kind of the hardest hitting cultural issues, issues of kind of American identity, immigration, crime, race, all of the above. Um, really kind of appeal, I think, to kind of national conservatism and some of our kind of sister movements on the so-called new right, but didn't necessarily really kind of fit in lockstep with kind of the more kind of business, uh, you know, Wall Street Gen- Wall Street Journal editorial board-esque vision of maybe some of the people in Fox News corporate. Um, of course, the Dominion suit saw some text messages in the aftermath of 2020 that were revealed during discovery from Tucker Carlson to some of his colleagues that, that cast uh, Fox management in unflattering light. And I'll, I'll I'll leave it to you guys to speculate on possible further uh, issues. There's a lawsuit involving one of his former producers. Who knows if that has a role to play here. Um, I, I, I guess the question really that I would have for the three of you and the one that I've been trying to figure out here in, in the not so very long time that we have had to kind of digest this information is not necessarily why this happened, but what are the implications of it? That is really kind of what I'm most interested in. I mean, what does it say, I guess, that the man who really kind of set the agenda more than anyone else for kind of what the new right, NatCon movement, the more kind of nationalist populist elements, what does it mean that he is now out of his nightly news slot? And uh, is, the, is it is it a black pill, I guess? I mean, like, is it a black pill or, or is it not necessarily the end of the world? Um, and I, I'd just be curious for everyone's thoughts on that.
2: Sure. I can jump in here and say that I I think this is a very different situation than some of the previous uh, people who had left Fox or been fired from Fox. So like going back to Bill O'Reilly, obviously, for very, very different reasons, setting that aside and just looking at, you know, obviously Bill O'Reilly was not able to continue to not only to build an audience of any size comparable to his audience at Fox, but like was not able to continue influencing uh, the conservative movement or the Republican party um, the way that he did with his slot at Fox. This is a very different situation, um, not only because Tucker Carlson is a different preacher than Bill O'Reilly, but also um, because the media landscape has changed so much, right, in the intervening years it's entirely possible that an independent Tucker Carlson could draw the kind of audience that he had at Fox, which I think is between three and 4 million people, right? Rogan gets 11 million. Uh, obviously he's adjacent to entertainment. And as Emily always points out um, as culture editor over at the Federalist, um, you know, all the, the ratings for all these entertainment stuff, is blows everything political out of the water. So, you know, Rogan's a bit of, of, of a half and half. And so perhaps that accounts for, the the disparity, but never nevertheless, um, it is now possible to go independent and bring in three and a half million viewers the way that Tucker did on Fox. The second, the, the separate questions, I've no doubt he will be fine. Um, the separate question and the more important one to my mind is a totally open one, which is, does the influence that he had over you know, not only in the ear of Republican elected officials, but on on everything you just mentioned, Josh, right, the the sort of direction of the right in America, can he maintain that kind of influence when he goes independent? Because there's no doubt that a large part of his, uh, you know, power within this sort of media structure came from bringing a lot of the voices and messages from the populist or nationalist right to a mainstream platform, um, so I think it remains to be seen how this affects uh, sort of the right and the future of the right in this country. I have no doubt, again, that Tucker himself will be fine, whatever he wants to do next. I'm, I'm sure every um, alternative broadcasting or, or I know the blaze has already offered him a spot. Right. I, I, I'm sure Daily Wire will offer him something. Right. Um, One America and and uh, Newsmax scraping up their pennies as best they can. They're going to all offer him as much as they can to come on the platform. What he No matter what he ends up doing, whether it's that or independent completely, I'm sure he will continue to draw a huge audience. The question will be, will his sort of role as um, a conduit for a lot of the ideas that the four of us care about uh, into the mainstream, will that be re- replicable without a platform like Fox? That, I think, is very much an open question, and we can revisit it in a year and see.
1: Yeah, I think that's the that is really the question. That was the benefit of having Tucker Carlson at Fox News as opposed to, you know, on a on a Substack or on Rumble where Glenn Greenwald is, whatever. Um, it's that there are a whole lot of people who sit down on their couches and really love Tucker, or who have no idea what Rumble is, um, and don't you know want to make it part of their nightly ritual to somehow project Rumble onto their television. <laughs> um, so I think there's something very, very, very much to be said about having the support of a corporation behind the journalism that Tucker Carlson did. Um, I think he can capture a huge audience on an independent basis or somewhere else, uh, but the the point of tucker it, it it's it's interesting too because tucker is kind of trumpian in the sense that he picked up on a lot of where the average american is or when still does um in a way that nobody else really could. And in a way that like when Trump is campaigning against uh, interventionism and uh, crazy levels of immigration, et cetera, et cetera, um, you didn't hear many people in the Republican party doing the same. I mean, basically no one you had like Jeff Sessions um, that was there on those issues. Um, And I think Tucker similarly, you know, when he starts talking about Blackrock and when he starts talking about um, ESG and all of that stuff. He, he was doing it in a way that led the rest of the media um, to sort of more closely represent the viewpoints, or to give more of a proportionate hearing to the voices of people in the rest of the country, and to to have corporate support behind that was remarkable. As Tucker himself said, you know, maybe it would never last. Uh, it probably couldn't. It's pretty hard to maintain. But I do think that is. The biggest deal here is that it was not sustainable um, to have somebody who represents fairly mainstream American viewpoints um, backed by a corporate network.
3: That's I mean, that's quite a commentary. You, you stated that with uh, in such a uh, dispassionate sort of manner, but that's a huge deal uh, to the extent that's what you know, mainstream so-called and corporate media is. Uh, but I think it is an accurate depiction of the idea that You know, first of all, I will agree with the argument that this time is different. This isn't just another major host departing from a major network. I think this is something of a seismic shift because Tucker was not only a unique and is not only a unique personality, but he had a very unique perspective. I mean, there's obviously kind of the, you know, this is the anti-elitist elite who spoke for, you know, to your point, Emily, kind of the, the median American, however we want to describe it. Uh, and that was one of the reasons why the show was so successful and those monologues were so can't miss because he made arguments or took angles and focused on issues that others don't it was a contrarian voice it was a contrarian voice not only within fox but obviously across the corporate media writ large and he obviously is was and is a unique writer a unique speaker and so there is something fundamental that's lost when that voice is taken off a major platform like that, and you know the core audience who consumes it may not go wherever Tucker goes next. And we'll see if that does play out. It's it. There still hasn't necessarily been too many great examples of those who independently strike, you know, strike out on their own and are able to achieve the same levels of success or amplification or even broader. But I do think that is from the perspective of you know, conservative media and media generally the real question here, the real intrigue is, will this be a test case in one of the first people who is able to strike out on their own, or does he choose to go in somewhere else? And you know, we might suffer if he goes somewhere else because he would still be constrained by a corporation, but on the other hand, there are benefits to that, as we've discussed as well. So it's gonna be fascinating to see. I think more intriguing than why this shook out the way that it did, I think is what Tucker does next. And I will say just as a coda, You know, the notion of that the Tucker Carlson's of the world, few of them, though they may be, if they are relegated to the Substack and Rumble as platforms, maybe those platforms become the dominant platforms going forward. But I also fear that that the powers that be will do everything they can to ultimately crush those platforms if there are only a couple places where people like that can go and those voices can live. And that definitely concerns me.
0: Yeah, it should concern all of us. Uh, Perhaps more thoughts on that in final thoughts. But for now, let's go to you, Emily, to tell us about the Biden re-election video.
1: Sounds good. And Ben did accurately pick up on my dispassion. Um, I'm a little under the weather, so hang with me on this one. Uh, just like our president, maybe I'll sound slightly better than he does. Uh, he released this morning as we're recording this on Tuesday, a three-minute campaign announcement video. Uh, just let's pause and appreciate the format for what it is. It's an announcement video so that it is completely controlled, that they can make him look as you know virile and energetic and presidential as is humanly possible. Uh, given the circumstances of his age. Um, that's no easy feat. Uh, he, His, you know, p- parts of it that he's actually on camera are actually limited because there's a whole lot of footage of, you guessed it, January 6th. Um, and there's a whole lot of footage of uh, the Supreme Court. It's a really strange video. Uh, he says that this election is about You're making sure that you have uh, more freedoms as opposed to less freedoms, which is incredibly rich coming from an administration that wants to ban gas stoves. Um, Just an amazing little, I think, glimpse into how pathetic this presidency has been, that they roll out their 2024 announcement in a three-minute video. Um, I don't know if anybody else actually had a chance to to watch the video. Um, Biden looks not great, even in a very controlled setting um it's just very boilerplate I was honestly so I shouldn't be but I was surprised by how much January sixth footage is in it he continues to cast his presidency as the only way to to battle for quote the soul of America we know that he is uh, a big fan of John Meacham and in fact has collaborated with John Meacham and Meacham wasn't super upfront and honest about that but that's a subject for another day um he really sees himself as the bulwark um, to to prevent the soul of the nation from slipping away. And they really think that's electorally their best way to win voters. Uh, I, I don't know that they're wrong about that in the suburbs, um, but after you know, four years in the rearview mirror, three plus years in the rearview mirror, that case is obviously going to be much more difficult to make, Um, even in the suburbs, uh, where people don't really love Donald Trump, and maybe they don't like Ron DeSantis either, because the media is telling them he's banning books. Both of them make an appearance in the campaign announcement video for what it's worth. Um, It's going to be harder to make that case that it's black and white, uh, soul of America versus death of America, when you also have uh, people struggling to afford their basic Lifestyle, and you have an administration that seems to be struggling to respond to that problem. Um, so, I, I'm curious what you guys think. Just the fact that they rolled this out in a video announcement is rich in and of itself, um, but it's also so limp and weak um, and pathetic um, that I think it's well worth talking about. As we head forward, we'll note a lot of people were interested in when he would be making this announcement, maybe not until the summer with some speculation. You have Robert Kennedy Jr. making his campaign announcement um, to a packed house last week and, and getting... Some interesting early traction among like left populists, um, even right populists. I think someone suggested that Trump add him to the as a vice president to his presidential ticket. Um, I don't think that's going to happen, but uh, he does have you know Marianne Williamson taking over TikTok, so it, it it sort of makes sense that he decided to just get in there and release the video now. Um, I don't know if they're actually worried about any of those threats. But it it did seem like they suddenly decided to roll out a campaign announcement. I'll kick it over to the rest of the group now, though.
3: It's also worth noting that this comes on the heels of the actual president of the United States, Susan Rice, stepping down from her perch as uh, the head of the domestic policy operation, which I, I do think is interesting and hasn't really been well covered. And And we'll see what the exit interviews look like in the media and how they frame her up going forward. So I think that is one uh, detail worth looking at, I skimmed through the video quickly and it was striking to me, first of all, that he starts with the negative essentially of the other side is evil and insurrectionary, etc. cetera. Usually I would think you want to start a campaign with, here's all the things that I've accomplished and why I'm great. And, I'm, and then I'm going to finish the job, which I think finish the job is kind of like, you know, the tagline that they use. But the fact... That they start with the fear mongering, I think, is so illustrative of the left's id at this point, point. and you know, kind of a running motif through the video is that these uh, MAGA terrorists are threatening to take over everything, and I'm, I guess, Joe Biden is the thing that's gonna save the save our democracy uh, from its demise. Obviously, it is hilarious. Well, first of all, I would think that some leftists would be incensed by the fact that freedom is the Core argument that he's putting forth in this video, uh, obviously they you know don't see the irony of freedom. Except we want to, we don't want to ban books. We actually want to ban entire categories of speech and actually throw people in jail for for espousing wrong thing or force people to get jabs or and lose their jobs otherwise, et cetera. But obviously the merits don't matter here. It's it's about the fear fear-monger, fear mongering, which to your point, Emily, is about trying to, I guess get people in purple suburban districts to go their way. But even setting this aside, and I'm, I'm probably gonna say this over and over again as we go into 2024, I actually think that the merits ultimately become secondary to an extent, to the extent the voting system is the way it is, and Republicans have no response to the various ways in which the rules have been set, in ways which favor Democrats, and Democrats know how to exploit them. So, you know, one thing that I'll be looking for on the Republican side is what is the clear and compelling message that Republican candidates are going to use to explain how they will win a general election, regardless of what the conditions are on the ground and where the sentiment of the public is, given Democrats have created a system that they know how to exploit to the nth degree, and Republicans have shown an inability to combat that now. So to some extent, I think this is all kind of bread and circuses to the extent we don't deal with the fundamental mechanics of how we're actually going to go about winning votes
0: in the States where the votes need to be had. I think that's extremely well said. And I I have been, I feel like I've been asking like many of like the like election lawyers on our side, the people whose think tank sinecures are purportedly dedicated to election integrity. I, I have been asking a lot of people, actually, I mean, like, what are we actually tangibly doing on a state by state basis to make sure that our voters get to the polls and to make sure that no illegitimate votes are cast? And I, I regret to inform the audience that most of those conversations don't, unfortunately, yield much in the way of fruits. And I, I, I too kind of share that that pessimism, Ben. To be honest with you, and I, I hate to sound like a downer, but in the, especially in the aftermath of the recent of the recent Wisconsin Supreme Court race that shifts that court to the liberals, potentially takes that extremely important swing state out of play. Right. I mean, it's not literally out of play, but it's maybe perhaps trending that way in the aftermath of that Supreme Court election. Yeah, I mean, right now, I think that Republicans really need to focus on getting their own house in order. And that's a tall task, as we are about to enter um, more earnestly into kind of the debate season and kind of the throes of what is surely going to be a very chaotic um, and at times perhaps uh, borderline violent primary, um, but tumultuous at a bare minimum. But yeah, I mean, I, I could not agree more about the, about the fundamentals. The only other very quick point I will make here is that, um, you know, as Emily and Ben have both noted, it is obviously true that Joe Biden's whole shtick is I am less crazy or I am more sane or, you know, like don't judge me on my merits. Judge me simply on a relative comparative basis, according to my opposition. Um, and, you know, that does kind of, I think, put the onus on whoever the Republican nominee is to actually make an affirmative case. And, you know, that case should be fairly straightforward, just run on kind of cultural, civilizational sanity uh, on, on all the issues that we, that we talk about on this show.
2: <clears throat> yeah just a few points to wrap it up on the actual campaign announcement itself um although i i also find myself uh quite pessimistic about uh the structure of the election uh coming up but on on the campaign video itself the, obviously as you've all said is doubling down on this like our democracy messaging um i'm not sure that that's a, a good way to go uh especially absent here is is uh old labor Democrat, Joe, um, I think it, it's surprising that they wouldn't run on uh, some of the legislative uh, achievements of the Biden administration. That's basically what his State of the Union was about. If you remember, he barely mentioned a lot of these like cultural issues that he's now glossing over in this announcement under the like guise of freedom, right? Um, so it's surprising to me that he wouldn't uh, put those front and center in his campaign, maybe indicative of the kind of debates that we're going to have. Um, who is front and center in this video is Kamala, and perhaps that's inevitable since, as Emily noted, even in a, in the careful contro- carefully controlled environment of a video, uh, Joe Biden does not look uh, vigorous in in this his campaign announcement, and, and in fact, doing it by three-minute video is itself a sort of, um, you know, a sort of lame way to kick off a presidential campaign. Usually, you know, you have a rally or you have, I mean, one of the greatest advantages of being the sitting president is you have the, you know, how you can call the press, you can call a great press conference. You are the sitting president. You, you know, use that bully pulpit. Um, None of that here. It's seemingly uh, kind of strange to forego that in favor of this carefully curated video Uh, which even in in that video, again, he doesn't look particularly vigorous. Um, And on that uh, sort of age note, they they announced this week there will be no Democratic primary debates, right? So there will be no debates with RFK Jr., with Marianne Williamson, so once again, the Democratic Party is sing- singularly anti-democratic in how it selects its nominees. We saw that, of course, with the Herney, uh, Hillary-Bernie race. And um, and before that, even structurally, they have those superdelegates, a huge number of superdelegates. Um, so it, it is a very back rooms uh, nomination process on, on the Democratic Party side, worth remembering again as we kick off into another campaign season. And then, and then finally, um, the polls are not good on Joe Biden running again. So it's not just the right that doesn't want him to run again. It's half of his own party. Um, so I think that goes to the infirmity issue that this video does nothing to dispel. And with that, I'll I'll kick it over for the next segment.
0: So let's go right to you, Ben, to tell us what's going on not with Joe Biden, but with Hunter Biden. <laughs> yeah. And of course, this implicates Joe as well. And, and I, I just
3: think it's worth emphasizing. As reflected in the we're going to announce our reelection with a literally stage managed video, and then we're going to have no primary debates. That we should never forget that it's their democracy, not our republic. And it's very clear in their acts that they want to have a continuation, I think, of the basement campaign that they ran in 2020. And we'll see actually if Joe Biden is out on the campaign trail, so to speak, going into 2024. But looking at that retrospective, uh, we've learned new additional revelations, and it always seems it's years after the fact, of how closely coordinated the so-called intelligence community letter of 51 very senior IC officials who came out and claimed that Hunter Biden's laptop was Russian disinformation several days after the New York Post article, alleging that you know influence peddling among the Biden family and links, ties and coordination with Joe Biden to that influence peddling, that in fact the Biden campaign helped coordinate essentially every aspect of that in- intel community letter, which was essential for a number of reasons, uh, beyond the fact that it created the appearance of the American people that there is nothing to see here. Joe Biden, in the one key debate, right, the last debate before the presidential election, leaned on that intel intelligence community letter to claim that the Hunter Biden laptop story was debunked and discredited. And we know now that the former deputy director of CIA and acting CIA director, a couple of times, Michael Morell, testified to the House Weaponization Subcommittee, that in fact, I believe it was the House Weaponization Subcommittee, certainly under the House Judiciary Committee, testified to the fact that it was Antony Blinken, then a senior advisor to the Biden campaign, and now, of course, Secretary of State who spoke with Morell and essentially in Morell's words, direct words were triggered the intent in Morell to help draft and coordinate the creation of that letter. Morell and the other Intel community officials, as far as we know, we're not planning on drafting any such letter, essentially claiming it at all the, all the classic earmarks or hallmarks of, of Russian disinformation. Uh, but then Morell went out and actually did help coordinate that letter. The Biden campaign actually advised on who they should leak that letter to in the press and get it out there. And Morell stated that his clear intent was to help Joe Biden get elected. And obviously, it's impossible to prove the counterfactual, but there's been plenty of polling to show that it could have had a decisive difference to the extent American people knew the contents of that letter and didn't dismiss it uh, and or that it wouldn't have been suppressed as Russian disinformation had the FBI itself not been kind of and other agencies been grooming and pre-bunking any such release of an article like that in the first place. So now we know that the Biden administration, uh, or at at that point, the would-be Biden administration was responsible for helping foist this massive information operation on us in cahoots with the intelligence community, in cahoots with the media. And of course, this shows once again, we don't need any more examples of this, that they are in fact all one block operating accordingly and that this was a massive American information operation uh, a disinformation operation in this case about disinformation uh, as we had of course going back to Russian collusion in the 2016 election and thereafter and the question at the end of the day I think is this you know beyond obviously you know some have said including the the former DNI John Radcliffe that you know, Blinken should be, should resign or face impeachment. And we can obviously talk about the merits of that. But beyond that, I think there's a question of what is to be done to prevent these kinds of dirty tricks, these abuses of the security clearances that these individuals have and the power and authority that they have from engaging in far worse chicanery going into 2024 and beyond. You know, to, since no one has paid a price for this operation, you know, either government officials or people who were IC, XIC officials on the outside, and obviously as Republicans note in their letters about these revelations, you know, this was constitutionally protected speech, but obviously those with security clearances again abuse their power and authority. You know, what can be done to ultimately combat these efforts and what is kind of the commensurate what's the tit for tat on the Republican side for combating this? Uh, and engaging with the same sort of gusto and rigor, but in a way that's actually consistent with our principles and not dirty tricks. Uh, I put it out to the group, you know, maybe you think that these revelations
0: are nothing burgers, or maybe you think they're bigger than I'm making out. Curious as to your thoughts. Well, they're definitely not nothing burgers. I, I mean, this is actually, this is a really big deal, actually. And, you know, Ben, I'm grateful as always for your shining a spotlight on the ever-increasing perfidy and corruption of our deep state and intelligence community apparatus. But this, this is a big one. I mean, this is... You know, I mean, there we've seen a lot. I think about the corruption of the intelligence community, the the outright kind of Democratic Party partisan weaponization of the intelligence community, going all the way back, of course, to the Steele dossier and Michael Flynn and all that in 2016, 2017. This is not not, but this this is this is a very big one, and it's a big one in part, as you mentioned, because Tony Blinken is very much still in power, and he is very much still in power. I might add, as an extraordinarily weak and deeply ineffective Secretary of State. I and mean, this is a Secretary of State, of course, who has overseen a Chinese Communist Party spy balloon just hover over the entirety of the North American continent without so much as, as shooting it down safely. This is a Secretary of State whos is, who, who is deeply distracted for fighting for freedom and democracy in kind of the depths of Eastern Europe while so many of our other kind of geopolitical adversaries only kind of arm up. So it, it is deeply important for that reason alone. You know, I think a lot of kind of the attention on the congressional Republican side for the past year or so has been on like, you know, impeach Mayorkas, impeach Mayorkas because of this unprecedented border crisis. But, you know, maybe it would behoove us. Or behoove Republicans, I should say, to hold some more hearings. And you know, I, I mean, you know, impeachment papers obviously are not going to go anywhere. Uh, um, you know, we shouldn't be delusional about that fact. But I, I mean, maybe it will be nice to to send that message. Um, look, I mean, when it comes to kind of your your overarching question about how can we kind of respond, um, I, I don't have a great. Uh, uh, answer there, unfortunately. I mean, I do think that we need to drastically pare back the size and scope of many of these intelligence community officials. And, um, you know, this is kind of a crass thing to say, perhaps. But, you know, I think just outright scorn and condescension and shame on many of the people who were involved in in this utter, utter, utter shred, um, you know, some of that would, I think, be wholly appropriate for our side as well, because this never, 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 never should have happened.
1: Matt Taibbi had a really good post yesterday about how this is essentially a vicious cycle. Um, and I, I just want to make that point because this is Banana Republic level stuff where you have the, and he started with actually the Iraq war um, and the the famous New York Times story, um, the, the famous Judith Miller, New York Times story. Um, and so it's not as though this is entirely new, but it is, I think, worth pointing out that we... It, are now in an era where you have the the sort of intelligence apparatus planting stories um, and then the media repeating those stories and then giving the intelligence apparatus more excuse to make their political point against their political opponent. And nobody in the media has any basic curiosity um, except for people that are in independent platforms like Taidi. Like actually nobody is covering this insane level of collusion um, in the so-called mainstream press and the legacy press, the corporate press, which is unbelievable. And I think that's what's really new um, that there's this breathless defense of the of the intelligence apparatus like oh how dare you they are they are the saviors of our democracy um and we cannot you know take shots at them at a time like this so that's what's really i think especially pathetic and kind of terrifying right now um this is i think this is a really big deal
2: yeah just to follow up on what emily said um absolutely this This is a huge and ongoing story with like various different, I mean, Ben has kind of laid out just one angle of this, but there there we have had example after example with the Twitter files and elsewhere of the kind of connections that go between essentially uh, quote unquote private corporations um, and agencies, intelligence agencies and other agencies. Um, And we have of course seen the media uh, make a, a total 180 several times already on what's whistleblowing, for example, and what, what is uh, an, a critical, um, what's critical information for the national security state and and, it, and somehow always weaving our way through all of these stories um, in such a way that supports the leftist narrative. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we talk about this nearly every week and nearly every week, there's another example of this just underlining it. Um, but this is why the the polls have have completely flipped on all of these agencies among Republicans. Whereas you know five or ten years ago, um, certainly ten years ago, maybe even five years ago, I think you have strong majorities of Republicans saying that they they do um, they do think that the work of agencies like the CIA, the FBI, right, um, the DOJ more broadly, thinking that that work is very very important. Uh, and supporting those agencies with strong poll numbers. And now you see a complete flip where I'm curious what the the uh, Pew polls on, for example, the CIA look like on the left in 2003. I'd be surprised if the Republican numbers on the CIA don't look similar to those numbers on the left in, in 2003. And that's, that's for very good reason. It's for these stories that we keep uh, seeing every week. And we keep seeing that, in fact, uh, there are enormous numbers of unelected people wielding great power um and and they're talking to their friends in the private sector uh, and getting things on that way they are actually using the power of these agencies in a politically weaponized way um and and this is in fact the real structure of of our regime is it i mean i don't want to be uh, as emily said she's under the weather uh, and therefore um you know s- sort of baldly stating these things without a lot of emotion i'm not under the weather and yet sometimes it's hard to muster appropriate horror at these stories when we have to cover them week after week after week but nevertheless uh we should remind folks that this is not how uh the american republic is designed to or is should operate um with that i'll I'll move into our final segment um and this is another one of these attacks on quote-unquote norms and quote-unquote legitimacy uh there's been a very clear and concerted effort um to try to force justice thomas either to resign or to whip up um support for potential impeachment hearings. I'm saying that now because I think that'll become obvious in, in the next several months. There's now been enough of these stories over, um, initially started by ProPublica, over um, a series of of quote-unquote disclosure uh, problems in, in the justices' filings. Uh, James Toronto over at the Wall Street Journal has done a very careful debunking of all, all of these stories. The first story was just that he had a rich friend um, it was <laughs> the original ProPublica story was basically a description of having a rich friend with a bunch of of adjectives jammed in uh, to make it seem very sinister um and the the second story I found something more concrete a uh purchase of this donor Harlan Crow a um, big Republican donor uh rich guy a purchase of the, the the Thomas childhood home in which his mother was still living uh, for the the astronomical sum of $133,000 for four properties. Um, certainly not the kind of money, uh, especially these days, but certainly not the kind of money that would indicate a kind of sweetheart deal or, or to cover a large cash transfer. Right. Um, a, a reasonable amount of money for these the the house and these these properties adjoining um harlan crowe then put out a statement saying yes i bought these properties uh, I, I bought them to preserve the, the childhood home of, of justice thomas and to eventually build a museum there." are very plausible for a guy who apparently has huge uh, historical memorabilia collections uh from from all different kinds of, of regimes and as, as well from america uh, as well as from american history so very plausible story there um, just breaking uh, in the last few hours, we're recording this on um, we were recording this on Tuesday in mid afternoon. Um, they found one case from 2004 that maybe has some tie through several intermediaries to Harlan Crow. Um, no no indication that like actually there was any communication about this case that the justice ruled in his favor even and in fact um harlan crowe has come out with a statement that to the wall street journal in an interview saying you know i'm, I'm more moderate than justice thomas for example i'm pro choice if i'm influencing him i'm doing a bad job <laughs> like um but but all of this to say uh, that, that there is this concerted effort and I think it's tied to the attack of the legitimacy of the court of course everything loses legitimacy as soon as uh, as soon as the left is not in control of it um, and and that's that's the case now with the supreme court so uh, I think these these attacks will continue um, I guess the questions I'd throw out to the group are um, one you know how do we keep sort of a squishy middle uh, from going squishy on this Mitt Romney has already uh, used the word it stinks uh, with regard to this, a clearly trumped up set of of charges against Justice Thomas. Um, <laughs> I'll point out by the way that Harlan Crow is also a donor of Mitt Romney's during his presidential campaign. so if 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 uh going out to to his yacht is uh, undue influence, one might ask the same question uh, about Harlan Crow and um, and Mitt Romney, but nevertheless, he's already come out and said said this. Um, there have been attempts to get uh, Chief Justice Roberts to investigate. This further, um, there's, there's again, there's, I'd point you to James Toronto's reporting over at the Wall Street Journal, really uh, in depth on each one of these disclosure things and why this is really a nothing burger. It is really nothing more than Justice Thomas has a rich friend and that's apparently not acceptable. Um, so, but the questions: how do we keep the, the squishy middle in line here? Um, where is the left going with this? Is this tied to the larger picture of, of increasing attacks on uh, the, the legitimacy, quote unquote, of the Supreme Court? Um, and and court packing schemes, all of those things, we've we've kind of been in the mix uh, since the court has flipped to, I would say, a 5-4 conservative majority. So with that, I'll I'll throw it out to everyone else.
0: So look, um, the left has been trying to new Clarence Thomas for 32 years now. This is a man who was nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals back in 1991, Infamously, they trotted out all of the Anita Hill charges. Clarence Thomas, who was then in his early 40s, famously referred to it at his Senate Judiciary Committee confirmation hearing as a high-tech lynching. And the left has never stopped. They have never, ever, ever stopped calling him an Uncle Tom, a a low IQ individual for his respectful kind of reticence at asking questions at oral argument. I mean, and so this is there is this is the only way, this is the only lens, I think, to kind of see this new flurry of attempts to smear him as some sort of kind of unethical ignoramus is through this three decades long lens of trying to smear one of not only one of the greatest black conservatives in American history, but one of the greatest conservatives in American history and someone who I have repeatedly said, in my own humble opinion, is the greatest living living American, certainly at this time. Um, and I, you know, I would also commend in terms of kind of getting into the actual details in terms of the actual weeds of these purported uh, allegations. I do, I, I agree with Inez that James Taranto has done a very good job now in kind of a short series of pieces, kind of um, getting rid of this. Um, uh, look, when it comes to Harlan Crow uh, in in particular, someone who I've kind of only met in passing. Uh, he lives in Dallas. I used to, I used to live in Dallas. He's kind of a prominent player on on the scene there. Um, uh, when it comes to Harlan Crow, one uh, p- particularly egregious thing that I saw that I want to just very quickly swat down, uh, Harlan Crow, one of his kind of uh, idios idiosyncrasies is he has kind of like a, what is known as like a a garden of tyrants, where he has kind of um you know, short kind of statues or monuments to to some of the greatest tyrants in human history, kind of in, in his backyard. I've not been to his house, but I've been told this by numerous other people. And, you know, that includes uh, like the worst of the worst. I mean, Pol Pot, Mao, Hitler, you name it. And there is kind of this very bizarre line of attack that I saw trying to smear Har- Harlan Crow uh, as an anti-Semite for, for including uh, Hitler of all people here. And I just want to quickly say that that is just, Utter and complete garbage. Um, there is zero, zero basis for this whatsoever. Um, what you know, if I personally had five, six, seven billion dollars, however, however much money Harlan Crow is worth, would I personally have statues of of Mao and Hitler? Probably not. But there is literally zero, and I mean zero evidence to suggest that there is a bone in Harlan Crow's body that has any kind of animus of that nature. He is truly just dedicated to the proposition that in order to make sure that we do not let this great experiment in order to liberty kind of go down the toilet, that we have to constantly remind ourselves as to the great tyrants of, of history. So
3: I'll be brief and just to, to echo Josh's words. Uh, The left loathes Clarence Thomas above almost any other American figure. uh, And that's in no small part because he refuses to waver. He will never cower. He will never submit. And that, combined with the fact that he is a Black conservative from the South, is viewed as dangerous to them. He can't be controlled. He'll never waver. And how many other millions might never waver? Very few, obviously, have the kind of courage that he has. But he might inspire that kind of courage in others so not only do they have to go after him but they have to go after his wife and anyone else in his remotely near circle precisely because they cannot permit there to be dissent and particularly a symbolic dissent like he personifies Uh, and let's not forget by the way that joe biden was right there overseeing those hearings when the initial high-tech lynching transpired Uh, i would add to that that to Inez's point In addition to the fact that they have to attack Thomas as a signal to others that if you follow in his footsteps, we'll try to crush you equally, so you better think twice about it, that beyond that, there's also the court itself, obviously. They want to discredit and delegitimize the Supreme Court because it's one of the only powerful and prominent institutions in this country that is not wholly controlled by them. And so consequently, of course, he needs to be attacked. It needs to be attacked. I'm sure there are probably some specific Supreme Court cases they anticipate coming up, and they'd love to try to get him or others to recuse on some kind of uh, pretextual basis. But this is all pretext. This is once again, show me the man. I'll find you the thought crime or the action or having a friend and enjoying being in their company. It's a joke, and I don't think the merits of it should even be debated. Although obviously, yes, uh, James Taranto and Mark Paoletta has also done some great takedowns of these frivolous attacks but they are just that frivolous and again Clarence Thomas's response and his courage in the face of the tyrannical onslaught that he has faced perpetually for more than 3 decades I think should serve as a testament to what everyone should look to in terms of how they conduct themselves and how they remain unbowed in perilous times
1: Yeah just quickly I'm completely on the same page on on that and you know obviously we're critical of government corruption on just about every episode here, and I don't think any of us would object to, um, you know, disclosure, stringent, whatever, stringent disclosure, uh, you know, regulations, wherever they may exist. But in this case, show me the evidence of um, undue influence. Show me the evidence of corruption. Show me the, the evidence that Clarence Thomas has conducted himself in any way whatsoever that has, has, any evidence of corruption. Show me that. Um, and we can talk about it, but there's absolutely no evidence that he's uh, been unduly influenced by Harlan Crow um, and that that has changed the way that he has behaved as somebody uh, who is uh, has the level of public trust you know, that he does um, and responsibility and power that he does. Show me where that influence has changed his decision-making or his thinking. There's absolutely no way that you can. Um, and I think that gets lost in this whole conversation uh, purely about the optics, and he's been very compliant. um, And you conducted himself, as Ben just said, uh, with the the utmost, I think, respectability.
0: All right, so let's transition now to final thoughts. Does anyone want to get us started?
1: I can start. Um, I I just think the, the Tucker Carlson story and what we talked about in Ben's segment in general, a lot of this, and even the Biden campaign announcement and the Thomas stuff in general, a lot of this are examples of things that that just wouldn't, that, w- that would have been covered differently had they happened in another era, or there would have been more public awareness. So there would have been slightly more accurate information um, to in the, the sort of public conversation, the public discourse about these issues. And I think that shows how important it is that people like Tucker Carlson put the effort into Um, building up new institutions and, you know, those new institutions, like, you know, Tucker had Glenn Greenwald on all the time. Um, That's an amazing thing to get on Fox News, (laughs) like in 2023, like that's actually amazing. And it's a good thing to have people like Tucker talking to people like Glenn or people like Matt Taibbi um, talking to, you know, people like Oren Cass. And that's like really, really, really important. And uh, to the extent that people can build up those other institutions, it changes the incentive. System that the old institutions operate on, Um, it helps them see, you know, how foolish some on a business level purely some of those decisions can be. So uh, I think in in general, maybe there's a silver lining to this. Um, You know, there's there's. It was hugely important to have him on a so-called mainstream platform, um, but you know he can, he can be part of changing that incentive system, I think, too, and, and that's really important for the solutions to all the other problems that have been raised on this episode, because if the public doesn't have accurate information, they can't act with uh, accurate information, they can't vote with accurate information, um, and people in positions of power can continue to get away with stuff behind closed doors.
2: Yeah, to add on to uh, the the Tucker story, um, normally I like to ignore what AOC says, in part because she has that kind of amplification relationship with conservative media that benefits both, but not necessarily the country. Um, But in this case, I think what she said is is very revealing about where the left is going on questions like this. Um, In her interview, she basically outright called for taking people like Tucker Carlson off the air by law. Um, once again uh the people the the crowd of our democracy and and our norms um apparently those norms include taking voices with which she disagrees off the air by the under penalty of law um that's pretty blatant uh pretty blatant endorsement of of uh, government censorship you know apparently all of the things we talk about every um every week on here in terms of of um and collusion between government agencies and private censorship was not enough for her. Uh, she said, uh, and here I'll give you the quote, it said. Um, I believe when, that when it comes to broadcast television like Fox News, these are subject to federal law, federal regulation in terms of what's allowed on air and what isn't. When you look at what Tucker Carlson, some of these folks on Fox do, it's very, very clearly an incitement of violence, not under any legal standard of incitement of violence, uh, very clearly incitement of violence. And that is a line we have to be willing to contend with. Um, So, and she said we have to explore it that line through law as well, very clearly indicating that she believes in taking uh, voices like Tucker Carlson's uh, off the air under the law. And then uh, just a a literally one sentence note on Clarence Thomas debacle, Uh, there can be no quid pro quo when you can't show me a quid and you can't show me a quo. So, I mean, that's all she wrote, folks, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Uh, uh, I'll be quick. Um, We've talked a lot about Tucker, and it's an extraordinarily important story. Um, It's hard not to view it as a black pill. It'll be fascinating to see where he lands. I, like many, presume that he will go independent, and I know that um, I will be among the many who will continue to to follow him and listen to and to watch him. Um, On a related note, though, I I just want to say a brief word. Um, to kind of go way back to my opening segment, I kind of mentioned that I just saw Tucker speak in person of the Heritage Foundation's uh, 50th anniversary gala uh, outside DC on Friday evening. And he was given just this really extraordinarily generous, lavish, but also sincere, like very sincere um, introduction on stage by by uh, my friend and our friend, uh, Dr. Kevin Roberts, the, the relatively new still president of the Heritage Foundation. And I just want to say a very quick word um, just to praise uh, Kevin Roberts for the excellent, really excellent job that he has done in in barely over a year at Heritage um, in clearly trying to kind of, um, you know, capture a sense of, of of understanding the gravity of the moment, of, of being able to understand that not necessarily every kind of 1980s kind of Reaganite bromide or platitude, the likes of which some of his predecessors perhaps might have spouted, uh, you know, cough, cough, cake James, things like that. Um, and, and Dr. Roberts has really just done an, outs- an outstanding job there helming the very, very, very large rudder of the Heritage Foundation ship. Um, you know, there's still some work left to do, to be clear. I think Kevin would be the very first to acknowledge that. In fact, I know that he would be. Um, but I was really, really, really delighted to be there and to see this kind of camaraderie between Kevin and Tucker on stage. And I look forward to seeing what comes next for Heritage. Um,
3: Two kind of disparate thoughts. The first is on impeachment as a remedy broadly. I suspect that there's little appetite among most Republicans in the House and certainly in the Senate to pursue impeachment as a remedy for a whole slew of Biden officials who we could probably make very compelling cases have committed high crimes and misdemeanors thinking that, well, it's not going to wash with the American people. We'll lose in the media. This will be seen as a distraction and a sideshow and more maga radicalism et cetera, but on the other hand i would say that donald trump was frivolously impeached twice so they act with total impunity with respect to impeachment and then republicans are going to once again claim that they're you know effectively okay losing with dignity or at least conceding on the politics and basically admitting that they can't make the compelling or credible case Uh, When the other side has is basically going to make impeachment now the norm, if and when Republicans ever rise to the executive again, um, I think is something worth considering and thinking through. And I think the Democrats certainly would view it as weakness. And again, we can discuss whether on the merits on the uh, certainly on the politics. It's a winning proposition. But I think it is worth keeping in mind that if we believe in tit for tat and there is none with respect to impeachment as a remedy. Uh, that's probably a loss. Um, Setting that aside, but relatedly, uh, I just want to reiterate again, uh, and I've had the same experience that Josh has in speaking with folks about election integrity going into 2024. I've seen no clear, cogent, compelling argument for Here's what went wrong in 2020, and here's what we observed in 2022, and here's what we're going to do in 2024 to exploit the system as it's currently set out to the maximum extent and then even find ways to improve upon what Democrats might have done in 2020. The fact that you do not have an open discussion of that, that there does not appear yet to be a robust operation on the Republican side— I think is a is should send off massive alarm bells to the American people because ultimately, especially if it's a closely contested race and we're, let's say, a roughly 50-50 country, the politics and policy are really going to prove secondary. You know, I'd highlight just a couple efforts. You know, first of all, Democrats since the end of the 2020 election have made it their sworn effort to disbar and destroy any prominent conservative lawyers who would take presidential election dispute cases. They're trying to disbar them and wreck them, essentially. And that that operation continues right now. So the first thing is they want to make it so that no Republican could ever contest an election or be fighting any of the battles that might have to happen in lawfare that Democrats have certainly built a massive machine to litigate over. But beyond that, you have renewed zuckerbucks like efforts going on and, and ways to try to find ways around and find loopholes around state laws that have sought to bar Zuckerbucks. And beyond that, really not discussed uh, in some time in any significant degree, including in this Congress, is the sort of Biden-Bucks effort, as some may recall, an executive order, which calls for every single agency essentially to drive voter turnout. And of course, that may well mean and in practice has seemed to mean Uh, turning each and every agency into a voter registration agency, and particularly those agencies who may be dealing with folks who would have a propensity to vote Democrat or who receive direct benefits from an agency, which, of course, is under a Democrat administration. And so they'd be likely to vote Democrat, on top of the fact that under that executive order, worth noting, and this has never really been interrogated to a substantial degree, the administration calls for agencies to work with potentially quote-unquote nonpartisan third party organizations to register and mobilize voters. And you can obviously see how corrupt that could ultimately be and how decisive and meaningful that could be in an election. And that those efforts are currently ongoing right now, and we have very little insight and transparency into what those efforts look like and who those organizations might be today. So all of this is a long-winded way of saying the election mechanics itself and the strategy and tactics that are going to be undertaken Anyone who wants to claim that they ought to be the nominee for president on the Republican side has to answer the question of how they expect to win under the rules
0: and the game that's currently being played. Extremely well said. Agree with every single word. We are well out of time, though, for this show. So on behalf of Ben, Emily, and Inez, I am Josh Hammer. We will see you at the next NatCon Squad.